0: Good morning, little church. Happy Sunday and happy Thanksgiving week, too, already. I, it's sort of, I feel like, crept up on us. I think, feel like it's either earlier this year or maybe I've just been sort of enjoying the magic of what feels like local summer here in Laguna, like October and November, just beautiful and magical and we get a little bit of rain this week and it feels like we're officially transitioning into fall into the holiday season which is just going to bring so much joy so much anticipation but in the spirit of thanksgiving i really just want to say thank you to this church it's become such a home such a beautiful place to sort of do life and follow christ and it was so clear i know we talked about it already this morning but thursday night we had this really special event here in fellowship hall and i was just overwhelmed with joy to call this a church home and then to hear what steve said as far as what was raised and sort of how this all came to be, it's, it gave me chills from head to toe. I'm just so thankful. So I guess I'm moving to Laguna, it sounds like. So, um yeah just it's it really is overwhelming and i'm just so grateful and it just makes me think sort of about the story of it's it's kind of crazy to be standing up here preaching from the pulpit today and i just think about even my story at this church and i'll never forget kind of walking down this aisle just a couple years ago not knowing what to expect and sort of sitting in these pews and feeling this like settling in my soul there was just this sort of peace about this place uh that just felt so natural and it was before i even heard jeff preach and Of course, he's become such a a great mentor and friend uh, over the last couple of years. But once hearing him preach, just knowing kind of immediately that day that this would become a church home for me. So it's kind of cool to, to, to think about my own story in this place. But it got me thinking about sort of every person that's in this sanctuary right now sort of has their own individual story on how they arrived here and how they got here. I know uh, I don't know if Dale Gears here this morning, but he's been coming here since 1966. So he's got a long kind of legacy story here, but then I know I have some friends in the audience today who this is your first time, at little church. And so it just gets me thinking about how sweet it is that we sort of are all on our own individual stories. There's this sort of individual faith journey that's all landed us here in this sweet little town, in this sweet little church on a Sunday morning to sort of lift our eyes up to the greater story that's happening around us, the beautiful cosmic story that God is writing. And it's not lost on me, the fact that I'm preaching this story and that I'm preaching the Word of God today. For the first, for those of you that know my story, I got to share some of it on Easter this year, but for the first 25 years of my life, uh, this book was largely irrelevant to me. I didn't grow up with a Christian background. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so I kind of was living into my own story. The Bible was sort of this like irrelevant, outdated piece of scripture that I kind of like really wanted nothing to do with. It just didn't feel like it was something that could be useful to me in my life and sort of the life that I was trying to live. And yet, at a low point in my own journey, kind of the lowest point possible, I turned to this book and opened it for the first time, hoping to have eyes to find truth and to find something Um, to kind of latch onto, and all of a sudden, the the words in the scriptures, sort of the words in this book took life and gave me new life in a way that sort of reoriented my whole story to the Word of God. And so um, I just, I want to sort of set the tone for today that that's why we come to church. That's why we're all here on a Sunday morning, is to be reminded of sort of the greater story that's taking place, to sort of lift our eyes up into what Jesus is doing. So uh, I get the pleasure of sort of reading a story today, and it's a little bit longer, and when I get to it, um, we'll sort of unpack it deeply, but I just love stories because they help us make sense of the world. It sort of separates us, I think, from the rest of creation. When you sort of think of, like, the trees or maybe the fish in the sea, like, I don't think they're necessarily thinking about their story. I don't think that I think they're just simply existing, and yet us, as sort of made in the image of God, we sort of have this consciousness that's always kind of wrestling with the greater story. It's like what is our what is our place in this bigger story that's being written what is our purpose what is our meaning why are we here joseph campbell who studied stories extensively sort of myths and comparative religion says stories show us how to bear the unbearable approach the unapproachable conceive the inconceivable stories provide meaning texture and layers of truth and I just think about sort of the stories that have shaped me or like helped me along in my life. I, I think there's, if everyone could almost think of a story that they gravitated to at some point in their life, it could be a novel or a movie, or maybe when you were a child, there was just a story that grabbed you. I think for me, Lion King was one that like at five years old, I just like loved that movie. It was so good. And I don't know if it was just like Timon and Pumbaa being funny or the fact that the soundtrack was like absolutely fire. Like it was just the best soundtrack ever. It's still good. Uh, but I... I, I loved that movie and then it just it just was funny a couple months ago I was on a flight to Africa and they had The Lion King and they had sort of the new Pixar version of it which was a little speculative about it. first I was like how do you redo a masterpiece like it was so good as it was and then the beautiful thing is they kept the story the same they changed the animation but as I watched the story in my 30s I was just like I was brought so low I was amazed at just sort of the hero's journey and sort of the arc of the story is still so beautiful and resonates and sort of pulled me into it in a way that I found myself balling on a, on a plane flight, just like, wow, this is really moving. And that is sort of what the power of story has on us. It sort of evokes our emotions. It sort of brings us out of ourselves into something deeper that we somehow understand, but can't fully grasp, but we, we want to know that it's true. Right. And I think that's sort of what, uh, in understanding scripture and sort of understanding the greater Christian narrative, that's what God is after. The great author of the story from beginning to end is, is writing this beautiful story sort of of the universe that we're taking part in. And it, it begins in Genesis one with, I just love that, that how the story begins is in the beginning God. And from Genesis through Revelation, but through where we are all the way to today, he's continuing to write this story that we're all taking part of. But the beautiful thing about the Christian narrative was that he didn't just write the story, but that he actually placed himself into the story. Through his son, Jesus, he actually reveals himself to us. And I love sort of the way that C.S. Lewis kind of um, makes this analogy. He goes, it's like if Hamlet were to ever know Shakespeare, Shakespeare would have to write himself into the play and sort of enter the scene. The sort of beautiful image for us to truly know the spirit of God is to actually know um, what he was like, and he does that through his son, Jesus. Jesus. Lewis says it like this as well in this quote that I love. He goes, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as all the others, but with the tremendous difference that it actually happened. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that Christ used stories as a primary way of teaching that he loved to kind of show us his character and his nature through storytelling. And he would call these stories parables. And I know many of you are probably familiar with what a parable is, but just to kind of uh, for basic teaching to share with you guys, I mean, a parable was basically kind of a short, metaphorical, allegorical story that sort of had an underlying truth to it, sort of a spiritual truth to it. Parabole in Greek means to place beside. So you can almost think of like there's there's an initial meaning, but aside, besides that, there's something deeper happening. Or you can even think of another derivative, the shape of a parabola. There's like a center point, and there's two sort of symmetrical lines happening. So there's there's two things at play here. Sort of Jesus used things like nature or farming or things that felt uh, something we could connect to initially, and then use that as sort of metaphorical language for what was underneath that He's trying to show us what the kingdom of God is like, And what I love about Jesus is just he uses teaching rather than telling us directly what we should be doing. He sort of uses these stories to shape us. He has more than 30 parables throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's typically in response to a direct question. There would be, whether it be the Pharisees, the religious leaders, or the disciples would ask a question to him. And it would often be a hard question. And I just love the brilliance of Jesus. Rather than him just saying, do this or do that, or this is how it is, he goes, he responds with these really rich stories. And what I think is so beautiful about that is it shows his heart. He's not after our behavior modification. He's not after just getting us to behave right or do what's right. God's not interested in a story with a bunch of automatons who are just doing exactly what he wants us to be doing, but he's actually inviting us in so that we have a kind of choice out of love to engage and enter his story by our own choice and be involved in it. That Jesus is after our heart transformation, that he's trying to engage our emotions so that we willingly join in the story that he's writing. So often why he says the kingdom of God is like when you think about something as big and incomprehensible as God, the only thing we can do is compare it to something. And so that's what Jesus is sort of showing us through these parables. And the beautiful things about the beautiful thing about parables is they sort of move with us, depending on where you are in your faith journey. I think today's story might hit you in different places. I know it does for me. And sort of like the Bible as a whole, it's this like living story that changes with us as we go throughout our walk. And one for me, as I'll sort of set it as an example, is that's been really powerful as far as showing that changing is the parable of the prodigal son. I know we're probably familiar with that story, but just in its simplicity, I'll sort of um, summarize it. It's there's There's a father who has two sons, and out of his great love and compassion, he gives them both their inheritance. The younger son asks for his inheritance, and then he actually goes and he squanders it all away on prostitution and partying and sort of loses himself. And in his disgrace and shame, and at his lowest moment, he comes back to the father out of humility. And the father just lovingly embraces him and kisses him and throws him a party and welcomes him back with compassion. It's a sort of this beautiful moment of grace and I felt myself being that younger brother and I've experienced that in my walk and Sort of feeling that overwhelming feeling of grace and at the same time There's this other thing happening in the story where there's an older brother who does what he's supposed to do And he stewards his blessing well, but at the same time he sees what's happening with the younger brother and sort of in his own pride and sort of in his obedience feels that he should be owed more. And I've actually found myself in my Christian walk in the last few years, sort of in my own obedience, feeling like, well, where's my blessing? And sort of relating my relating more to the older brother on, what about me? And so that's what's so interesting about these stories is they they start to shape with us. They start to move with us. And so my hope today is that wherever you're at, that this story would move along with you. What's cool about Jeff preaching from the lectionary is that didn't get to really pick a passage today. It wasn't about like framing up the message that I wanted to give to the church, really. There's a beautiful sort of honesty about moving through these prescribed passages that were sort of in line, and and this is what happened to be today's message. And so um, my hope is that by just reading it and letting the word be the word, that this would challenge us and press some buttons for us. Keller says it like this, and I think this is just a sweet way to approach the Bible, um, and a good reminder that contemporary people tend to examine the Bible, looking for things they can't accept, but Christians should reverse that, allowing the Bible to examine us, looking for things God can't accept. So with that, we are going to finally dive into our story, which is in Matthew 25, and I'd actually love to invite, everyone has Bibles in front of them, sort of in the pews. We're going to put it up on the screen, that's typically what we do. But this is one of the longer parables, and I'm just a big fan of engaging with the text that's in front of you. I think it can be really powerful to kind of move with it as we read. And so just would invite, uh, for those of you who you feel comfortable, and if you want to read from the screen, that's great. But it's on page 830, if that's helpful. And to set a little context before we read the story, Matthew 24, the disciples sort of asked Jesus, what's going to happen in the end times? Like, how's this all going to go down? And Jesus being Jesus, rather than just answering simply, he answers with not one, not two, but three parables in a row, sort of uh, elucidating and illustrating how this is all going to go down. And this is the second of the three parables. And again, as a, as a sort of a context, a talent, this is called the parable of the talents. A talent isn't necessarily like being good at guitar or being able to like juggle. A talent in this story is actually like a significant sum of money. It's uh, almost equivalent to like a year's wages. So just think of it as a substantial amount of money in this story. And so before I read it, uh, I'm going to pray because I just want to lift uh, our hearts and eyes up to see this scripture. So Father, we just thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you. For his word, Lord, we just ask that you would uh, open our eyes to see that you would just speak truth through this story. We thank you that you love us, and we just pray that we would feel that love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dive in. So, starting with verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent and went and dug in the ground and and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me to five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's key, we'll come back to that. Verse 22, And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be a we- weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Um, acknowledge those last few verses are heavy, and I'm going to do my best to unpack those today. Um, you know, again, when, when we look at a parable on its surface, it sort of, this sort of reads like a simple stewardship lesson, almost like a basic financial investing lesson. I think we're probably pretty familiar with that in a place like Laguna Beach. It's kind of take what you've been given and put it to work and, and it'll, you know, it'll double or compound. And, and that's sort of the simplicity and sort of stewardship of this message. And that's, that's, there's a lot of truth there for sure, but I think we want to get underneath that and realize what are the spiritual implications of this story? How are we investing our life? Where are we investing our heart? Again, uh, in the context of a parable, it's placing aside two things. And I think one thing we tend to do, or at least for me, when I read a story, we sort of contextualize it to ourselves. Like, how does this make sense for me? Which servant am I in the story? And while we're going to kind of assess the behavior of the first two servants, I I first and foremost want to sort of lift our eyes to the master in this story this sort of like beautiful graciousness that he has as far as he calls these servants and out of his grace and generosity, he gives them each a blessing. Notice how they don't do anything before they're gifted the talents. There wasn't anything that they did to earn them. There wasn't like one servant worked harder and therefore got more talents that just sort of out of the master's generosity, he freely gives. And I want to acknowledge that yes, he does give three different amounts and that's sort of interesting right I, I remember teaching this to the youth up in the upper room and sort of their reaction to this was like this isn't fair like i don't know i don't know how i feel about this master and i understand how we can sort of read that and initially feel that but i i would almost challenge us with that if almost who are we to judge kind of who gets what i think we all walked into the sanctuary with different gifts and different abilities and different circumstances and i think sometimes the trouble is looking around and seeing who got more or who got less and, and putting so much of an emphasis on that rather than what have we been given and how do we make much of that I think it's sometimes almost uh, kind of the culture that I grew up in this sort of participation trophy culture of we just want to make sure everyone gets the exact same. That makes us feel more comfortable, and yet I think in God's design and sort of out of His graciousness, that there are different amounts given, and and that's okay. And I think that's part of the reason what's so interesting about having a sec- having three servants in this story—it's not just two. He doesn't just juxtapose the one versus the other, but that there's actually sort of a second servant in the middle who also receives less than the first servant. But it's sort of his posture of what he does is that he receives the same blessing as the one who receives much. And I just think when, as far as breaking this story down, I think the key thing for us to recognize is really the two different attitudes that we sort of see amongst these three servants. It's really sort of a choice with the blessing given to us. Do we choose to live in fear or do we choose to live with faith? And I'm not talking about blind faith. I'm, I'm really talking about faith as courage to step into the possibilities of the future with open arms. The first two servants sort of step into this, and they receive what was given to them as a gift. They sort of have this trust and faith that the master is good. That sort of leads their posture to just uh, acting in obedience and out of love and just feeling overwhelmed by the grace shown to them that they just want to put it to work out of their joy. And yet the third servant has a very different view of the master. I'll read it verse 24 again just to kind of highlight it. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And I was really moved in studying this passage of sort of that emphasis on I was afraid. That sort of fear and resentment, sort of a, uh, a posture and a lack of trust that he is good leads to control in our lives. It's it's sort of this idea that there's this tone in the servant. He's saying, I don't trust you. Like, yes, you gave me this, but I don't believe that you're good. And so I sort of want to control and dictate my own life. I want to take what's given to me, and I want to make much of myself. I sort of want to self-preserve and self-protect. I sort of want to live into the story that is is going to make sense for me, and so I'm going to safeguard it with everything I've got. And I think it's pretty clear, um, I, as, as I started to kind of observe and notice, how does fear impact our behavior in our lives? And I just think of kind of an interesting case study that we kind of all took part in, and it was in March 2020, sort of when the pandemic hit and this sort of uncertainty entered our world. We didn't really know what to make of it, and I'm I'm not saying this from a place of judgment. I think all of us in some ways were were sort of scared about what's going to happen. There was sort of this... Um, fear amidst everyone of like, what is next? And in that fear, I think it caused many of us to kind of separate ourselves or turn away or try to self-protect or self-preserve in a way that, to be honest, we saw people fighting in grocery stores over toilet paper. And it seems sort of ridiculous to us now that we're sort of back in this state of equilibrium, but I only point to that, again, not in judgment, as sort of a a case study and observation of what happens when we're afraid. We sort of have this need to latch on and, and make sure that we're taken care of. Another kind of example to me is, I I read this stat, I found it so interesting that the U.S. alone has more than 2.3 billion square feet of storage, like self-storage in our country. And just found that to be interesting, because more than 50% of that is just reported as people that didn't have enough space in their house for their things, so they just kind of put it somewhere else. And just, again, sort of that idea of how much are we sort of like, just need to kind of hang on to what we have. I just want to make sure that I have, like, I don't have enough in my house, but if I have some in storage too, just in case. There's sort of this idea of that we kind of need to like hang on to as much as we, as we have. And to be honest, that kind of stresses me out thinking that we just have more stuff, right? But there's sort of this control component to that. And one thing that kind of hit me as I was reading the scriptures was, yes, it seems as if the third servant holds on to what he has because he has less. But it's hard for me to imagine that even if he was given more, that he wouldn't still have the same posture of needing to hang on to what's his. It was more his attitude. It wasn't that he only got one talent. And I think we see this, actually, Jesus sort of explaining this in another parable. And this is in Luke 12. He says, "'The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, "'What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops.' And he said, "'I will do this. I will tear down my, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. "'And there I will store up all my grains and all my goods.' And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So we even see that with much, we can still sort of have this posture of needing to make much of ourselves, and I think this is how the enemy sort of works in our world, sort of Uh, plants this like scarcity mindset in our minds where he whispers in cunning ways to sort of take what's yours, fend for yourself. And he sort of makes us aware of our mortality and distracts us from the eternal possibilities that God has for us. And this is sort of what leads to this posture of self-preservation. And we see this, I think Adam and Eve were a great example of some, of, you know, the first story in the Bible of living in total abundance in, in paradise. And it's the enemy who comes in and disrupts this. I think we'll try to kind of see what that looks like as we read this story. Obviously, one of the oldest stories in all of Scripture in Genesis 3, to kind of get an idea of how this kind of infuses itself into our way of being. Genesis 3, 1 reads, "'Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "'Did God actually say you shall not eat of any, uh, not eat of any tree in the garden?' And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can kind of see the tone and sort of crafty language that the enemy uses here, sort of questioning Eve in a way that sort of heightens her own self-importance. And this is sort of the way when he speaks to us, he heightens our self-importance. And, and sort of his, his aim here is to make us doubt God and to make much of ourselves. This is the human condition in many ways. This is sort of the, the, the thing that we wrestle with and are living into is the sort of human condition of wrestling with that doubt and wrestling with this sort of voice that's trying to, to pull us into making much of ourselves. And yet it's Jesus who calls us higher. It's Jesus who's calling us Deeper. He died on the cross and rose again to come back and sort of have relationship with us, to heal this part of us, this sort of iniquity within us, to to restore it back to a place of taking part in the greater story with him. John 10.10 reads, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Out of his great love for us, he's doing everything he can to unearth what we've buried for ourselves, to show us that there's a different way of being. That it's actually not about us, but it's about Him. And that should be freeing for us to step into and live into. It says in Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This sort of idea of like being slaves to the things of the world, the things that we think we need, He's, he's longing to set us free from that. And to be honest, while I believe in Christ, I find this work at me, I find this at work in me daily. The sort of need for control, the sort of need to latch on, to make much of myself. And to be honest, in, in sort of doing life with Christian friends here, this feels like a common thread as a Christian is wanting Jesus and wanting a life with God, but also sort of wanting what we want, sort of wanting to do it our way. Like Eve, we want paradise, but we also want the fruit. Like the third servant, we want blessing and multiplication, but we also want to keep our inheritance just in case. We want peace and joy and freedom, which comes by faith. But we also sort of want the things of the world too, right? Like we want more social media followers, or maybe it's more attention, or a better job title, or a bigger house. Maybe to kind of hang on to that unhealthy addiction or obsession that we're really not sharing with anyone but we know about. And Christ is challenging us here, saying, I want all of you. All of you. Not your stuff, not these other things you're trying to do to make much Of yourself or to make it seem as if you're after me but i want your heart whatever you keep for yourself will be taken but whatever you are open-handed with and willing to give up you will be free from i love this quote from campbell again who is kind of a master in mythology he says we must let go of the life we have planned so as to accept the one that is waiting for us and that's very much been, uh, if I could just be honest, that's been my journey in the last six months and sort of finding myself to this moment right here, sort of finding myself on staff at this church, I was living a life kind of for myself. And even though I was a Christian and, and became a Christian at the age of 26, I also was kind of trying to hold both in many ways. And uh, I was kind of working my way up the corporate ladder at this company, Kendall Jackson. And after nine years, kind of ascended to a place of what felt really good, right? It, it sort of gave me the pat on the back. It gave me sort of the, the title and uh, you know the, the salary in order to buy a home and sort of, sort of do all the things in the world. And yet as I began to do ministry at this church, as I began to to do life in this way, I just felt God pulling me more and more to sort of the joy of serving him. And I started to live in sort of this tension. And if I'm being honest, I knew to some capacity about a year ago that I wanted to devote my life to this church. And yet for about six months, there was sort of this tension and wrestling with God as, again, the enemy whispered, so loudly, I mean, his voice can be so loud as far as the the constant thoughts going through my mind were, well, what are people going to think? What about your mortgage? Are you sure you're going to be able to survive? What if the back house doesn't get done? What if that doesn't work out? You want to get married and have a family. You really think that'll be, you really think that'll happen being a youth pastor? These are sort of the ways that he makes us doubt and yet, underneath all that, I just felt this deeper call and deeper joy. And so where there's that tension, it's there, there can be something so freeing in, in sort of listening to what Campbell's saying is letting go of that life we have planned and accepting the one that is waiting for us. And I'm not up here to tell everyone that you're supposed to leave your job and go into ministry. That's not what I'm kind of prescribing. It's more an understanding of where is there tension in your life? Where are you latching onto something or where are you trying to control your own story? What can you surrender could this be him calling you to something greater? And if you're here today and you're not living in that state of fear and control, but you really are living into faith and you're feeling this abundance, and that's so beautiful, and continue to, to use that abundance to multiply and, and um, extend that grace to others. But if you're here and you're feeling like, this feels really hard, the sort of thing you're talking about of like giving up the world, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I have some good news. God entered the scene. In the story not just to tell us these stories not simply just to teach them he lived it he embodied it hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him he endured the cross philippians 2 verses 6 through 8 says christ who being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When he was tempted in the desert, fasted for 40 days, and the devil sort of offers him all the things of the world, he chooses the Father's love. When he has his moment of despair in Gethsemane before going to the cross, and he sort of looks up and says, Father, is there any other way? And when he knows that there isn't, he says, Thy will be done, and courageously goes to the cross. And on the other side of that, there is abundance and eternity. He also tells us in Mark 8.36, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? I think he's serious about this. As we gain worldly things, what are we giving up as far as our soul? Thomas Merton says, If I trust in God's grace, I must also show confidence in the natural powers he has given me, not because they are my powers, but because they are his gift. If I believe in God's grace, I must also take account of my own free will, without which his grace would be poured out upon my soul to no purpose. So when we reflect on this parable, we can read it simply and just see it as a way to trust God to make much of our blessings. No matter the amount we're given, if we just trust him, he will multiply, right? And there is truth to that. But I think if we take it beyond just a lens of stewardship, if we open our eyes to see he's showing us the economy of the kingdom, which is about trust and radical sacrifice and giving up our ego. And the currency of the kingdom, sort of what comes back in that abundance that he's talking about is a peace and a joy and a gentleness and a patience. I love Richard Rohr says sort of great spirituality is actually all about letting go. In his book, Falling Upward, he talks about we spend sort of the first half of our life accumulating and acquiring all these things to make much of ourselves. And really the spiritual maturation is realizing that you did all that just to let it go. To let go of fear and trust in his goodness with faith, we we experience abundance. And you might be saying, look, I don't know this abundance you're talking about. I don't feel this joy. And I'll admit in my Christian walk, it comes and it goes. But I love the way that Brene Brown says this. And this sort of can be helpful for us to know as far as abundance. The opposite of scarcity is not abundance. The opposite of scarcity is simply enough. And trusting in the cross, it's it's already enough. It's already been done for us. And sort of that gives us peace to kind of step into the abundance that's offered. And this should be an encouragement to us, especially to the one who has given less. So you might be saying, okay, this seems like a lot like as far as what you're kind of uh, making of this parable, right? And so practically, what does this look like? What do we even do with this? Where are we in this greater story? How does this work for us? And I think it can be really simple today. We can... Just open our hearts to receive His love. Soften our hearts to know that no matter what we buried, no matter what we try to cover up for ourselves, no matter how dark our sin or selfishness that we push down, there's nothing that He won't do to excavate that and pull it into the light if we're so willing. If we just soften ourselves and open ourselves up to the grace been extended to us, we can receive His love. And this glorifies Him. Now, I'll acknowledge that this parable ends with the third servant cast out, sort of that harsh judgment that we saw at the end there. And it's because his heart remained hardened. We don't really see how the story ends, except for it remains hard at the end of this. And and that's where the frustration comes from, right? This is a rebuke. And, And setting the context, this was at the end time. So when Jesus is talking about this is at the end of things, if your heart remains hard, this is where we're headed, and this can feel like harsh treatment for us you know particularly to the third servant but if we remember that Jesus came to redeem and i love sort of this makes sense to us in john 3:17 for god did not son- send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him so remembering that as we read this story that he came to save the difference between the prodigal son story i mentioned earlier and sort of this story is that the prodigal uh he does squander his inheritance, but he ends up getting a party because in his humility his humility he returns to the Father. When we receive this grace with joy, it frees us up to give our gifts back to him and to extend love and grace to others. Religion says, if I obey him, then God loves and accept me, accepts me, but the gospel says God loves and accept me, so therefore I want to obey. And we see in verse 21 and 23 of this very story that when we accept his grace with faith, he says, Come share, and come share in your master's joy. As I close, I have some questions for us to sort of reflect on this week. I love the way that Jeff does this for us. It's always challenging for me and sort of creates a a thing to sort of journal on and think about throughout the week. And so I hope that in some ways, today's message helped stir some things up in you to to think about how can we um, sort of reflect on these things. So where in my life do I seek control? What am I bearing afraid to surrender? Do I really believe that I've been given enough? How would this belief help me live more open-handedly? What unique gifts has God given me? How can I steward these well for the kingdom? As I close, you might be sitting here today saying, whoa, dude, this is your first sermon. Um, This seems like a lot. You don't know my story it's been really hard and you don't know my circumstances you don't know what I have to hang on to and yes you're right I don't know everyone has come in here with different baggage and different stories and different traumas and different hardships surrendering can be difficult it has been for me throughout my journey I struggle with control daily but it's in this process of surrender it's in this process of sort of giving ourselves back to him that's when we are met with well done good and faithful servant It's as simple as that. He knows our circumstance. And throughout the scriptures, we see this story at work. We see that as we fall short, he continually shows up and he longs to bless us, and not with material things, but by dwelling with us and lifting us back up. So we have an opportunity to take part in the greatest story ever told. Jesus, the author and, and sort of creator of the universe, entered the scene, and he's reconciling and redeeming us Redeeming humanity back into himself. So long as we receive his grace as a gift, we can use our gifts and step into this story. This is the invitation, the opportunity, the talent we've all been given. Let's steward it well. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Um, just thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you are the great author and creator. Thank you for our part in the story. And Lord, we just ask for soft hearts. We ask that we would just give it back to you that we would make much of your name and that we would just trust that you are leading us into truth, that you are leading us into abundance, that you are after our joy, Lord. So go before us today, go before us this week and just help us release what we hang on to and the things in our life that we seek control of and allow us to just be open-handed in giving them back to you, Lord. We pray for your blessing. We just thank you for what you've done on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys, love you.